This season of The Moral Minority is dedicated to Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and all other black victims of police brutality. Together we say their names and we say Black Lives Matter. Welcome back to The Moral Minority. This is Season 5. I'm Joel Sam, and I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Luckett. This season, we're tackling something really important in our modern cultural conversation, and that's Black Lives Matter. We're going to be discussing the Black experience from a variety of perspectives. And today, we'll be starting with um, kind of the current conversation that's going on, prompted by the death of George Floyd and the protests that are going on across the nation. Josh, why don't you go ahead and introduce what we're talking about today and uh, yeah, let us know kind of how you're feeling. Yeah, no, it's so, so ladies and gentlemen, in case you've been living under a rock, um, Black Lives Matter won. It did. It's been a seven year fight on the cultural front, but um, I think just with, with Blackout Tuesday and every corporation that is in existence, um, putting the hashtag um, or having some kind of statement towards the H and shout out to Ben and Jerry's Ben and Jerry's. They've been doing like work. They, they went in. I, Cause you know, it's always skeptical when corporations do that, you know, do the whole like virtue signaling thing, but their, their explanation, everything felt so crisp that I was almost like, Ooh, this may be real. Like y'all, y'all really about this anti-racism thing, but yeah. And the reason that, there has been such a resounding victory for the Black Lives Matter movement, not just in social media and in corporations, but even in, I mean, there's some, there's been some kind of forced legislation um, as like all of a sudden um, there has been a significant amount of conversation about police reform and, um, and uh, uh, rededicating uh, finances to certain other areas within communities and, um, legitimate legislative moves of like stopping no knock warrants and having more accountability for police um, departments and uh, especially when citizens are killed. And so the reason for all of that, which we all know, is that the last month has been an absolutely brutal month um, for the African-American community as we've had to watch time and time again literally watch on camera the end of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And then of course, get the story about Breonna Taylor and just have to imagine just the awful nature of, of what happened to her and, and, and try to comprehend why on God's green earth, those cops would still be free at this moment. And so we have the, the terrible incident of Ahmaud Aubrey, where he's on a run suspected of uh, stealing from houses within the community and trapped um, on this run and then killed in the street. We have uh, Brianna Taylor, who her house was suspected to be um, a drug house 
and uh, there was a no knock warrant and uh, police officers came in and um, shot Breonna Taylor dead. Um, then, of course, we have the eight minutes in 46 seconds of um, an officer with his neck, with his uh, knee on the neck of uh, George Floyd um, as the most recent uh, terrible act. And honestly, there actually have been a few more that are just not getting publicized, but have happened recently. And it's all kind of led to this moment where I think the stillness of everything has just brought out the reality of everyone just kind of having to sit in it. No one's able to move. No one's able to um, just go on about their day, just going about their work. Everyone's sitting in the house, kind of, even if society's slightly opening up. And we just all had to sit with it. And it was just, it, it was, it was, this was a, a, a more profound moment for everyone to have to stop and think, wait a minute, do black lives have the same value in this, in this country? So that whole, that whole, this, this terror streak that has led to, you know, people in the streets in fury um, is, is what we're going to be talking about today and kind of how uh, the three of us are kind of processing through everything. And to do that, um, even though this is a very somber moment and may be a somber episode, um, I, I, I do want to have a, a beautiful, humorous moment to, to, to talk about the fact that um, our good friend is here and he is our most frequent guest, Kennedy <coughs> yeah. uh, Curley. Uh, he, he beat out Tiffany with uh, this is your third appearance. That's Tiffany right. has has two. Uh, so Kennedy, uh, just tell us, uh, whatever you probably didn't say on the first two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, my name is Kennedy. Uh, I've, as Josh said, been on here three times. Uh, I think one was talking about Kobe and another one was talking about, uh, Botham John. And so we've had kind of this talk going on for a little, a little while actually, but, um, yeah, I've worked with Josh at a uh, youth impact in college station. And, uh, we just like to have these conversations a lot where we're talking about Black issues in the community. Uh, me, I actually grew up uh, as the only black kid in my grade for third, fourth, and sixth grade. And so a lot of this, uh, I, I feel like I do have, a, I grew up with that white mindset, um, not necessarily like a bad way, uh, some ways, maybe so. Um, but I also feel like I was able to understand a little bit of, of kind of the subtleties of, of how people looked at me, uh, you know, how I was treated as kind of the darkest person in the grade, dreadlocks, things like that. Um, and so I just kind of want to shed a little bit of a light on kind of how, how I'm processing through this. Um, so yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm glad I'm the, I feel like I'm part of the show, honestly. Yeah, you <laughs> might as well, bro. Just another co-host. So right. I, I, I guess I would like to start with, so I follow you on Twitter, which uh -huh. is a joy. Um, and me and you have had a lot of conversations about race in the past mm -hmm. and, uh, on, on air here in, in, in the, at the, the moral minority show, mm -hmm. but then also just, just no cameras, no microphones, nothing. Private. Just, yeah, just mm -hmm. us talking either you at my house or us, you know, driving in the car to somewhere in youth impact. And you, I, I may be diagnosing this wrong, but you, you seem like this, these, recent situations have radicalized you a little bit and made you a little bit more militant. And I'm, I'm just very intrigued. Like what, what was it? Why is the energy seemingly different? seems like the content's ultimately the same. Like you still mm. have the same passions. You still feel the same way about these certain issues, but it feels like these particular circumstances have led you to really get 
mm-hmm. a little, you know, a little bold, a little prophetic. Yeah. Well, I think honestly, for a lot of people, it's not even just me, but for a lot of people, you know, like you said, we're sitting in our house, whether we're working from home or whether we're just at our house, uh, quarantined, whatever. And so just seeing, you know, one after one after another, it just kind of builds up on you eventually. And I've always been passionate about this, but I've been relatively calm as well. And I think this is kind of a time in in our history of police brutality and of racism that it's just kind of like, you know what? I don't need to be calm anymore. I don't want to be calm anymore because we've been calm this whole time. There hasn't been any change. And so um, I, I don't know if I've become more radicalized as much as I've just kind of been more introspective uh, and vocal about it. And so, I mean, like I'm a, you know, this, and you, this is part of the reason why you brought me on the Kobe podcast. Like I'm a huge sports fan, but I haven't talked about sports in like two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. Cause I just don't feel like there's a need. I don't, I don't care about sports. I care about, you know, something that matters to everybody's uh, lives. I don't, I honestly, like I've been thinking about this the last few days. I don't even, I don't care if the NBA starts back up. Mm-hmm. That's a distraction to me. I want to talk about this stuff. And so it's uh it, yeah, I might seem like I'm a little more radicalized, but I, um, it's, it's more so I just want to be more vocal about it and uh, really vocal with the right people too. Cause a lot of the time I, I talk to you, I talk to, you know, friends who are on the same page, but I don't really talk to people who, you know, might be from the churches that I grew up in or from the schools I grew up in or, you know, from family, you know, whatever. Um, so I just really, I decided I, I'd had enough. Uh, this is, this is just too much. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something I've noticed in the past few weeks, which I did not expect, like right when the protest started happening, I was like, all right, like I've, I've had it. I got to like really be a lot more vocal on social media about this. Cause I've been, you know, around, um, the conversation about systemic racism for a couple of years now. I haven't been super invested, but I've been slowly learning piece by piece and having a lot of conversations about it, especially with my black friends. And uh, I started, you know, posting on social media and then I realized, whoa, wait, is everyone posting on social media? Mm. And it was it was a shock to me. Like, I did not expect so many of my white friends to publicly show solidarity with Black Lives Matter specifically because that group has been uh, polarizing in some communities for past seven years. And so mm-hmm. I was very surprised to see a very obvious tipping point in the cultural conversation. What used to be like, oh yeah, like, you know, obviously we're against racism, but we we can't be like militant about this. We can't, you know, what there's no practical radical change. And then to see a switch and where like, just like random white people I know are like, yeah, let's defund the police. I'm like, what? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> I did not expect that. I was like, and then I was like looking back at myself and I was like, wow, now like my genuine participation looks like virtue signaling. And I just feel like mm. I like look like one of everybody else. And I'm like, ah, oh, crap. It's not, uh-huh. it's not what I want. It's like, you know, I'm uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, we felt just- crazy for a while. I did. Now, yeah. everyone, now, now everyone agrees with us. Nah, it's like, what? You know, now it's now it's totally normal to be woke. Like everybody's yeah. woke except like, you know, I don't know. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, different. There's, Something there's, is different with this conversation. Like, obviously, you know, Ferguson, Trayvon, we, we, we've mm-hmm. been through this so many times. We've had these conversations, but this one feels so, so different. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's there's now an autonomous zone in Seattle that is seceding from the u.s basically like come on that's different <laughs> that's i i like it i like it here's the thing oh, y'all. i gosh. think someone 
one of my favorite political commentators, uh, Kyle Kalinske, really did a great job of summarizing kind of where we're at right now. He said, imagine if the swine flu, the Great Depression, and the civil rights movement all happened at the exact same time. Because yeah. that's kind of where we are. We're at this place where we're, we're going through the biggest global pandemic of our lifetime. We are in an economic recession um, that has been terribly managed by our government. And there have been ugly racial issues that have been on the overt and covert level in front of us for years. It's been heightened and um, kind of revealed under the presidency of a guy who is just loaded with racist ideas and uh, President Trump. And now it's all just kind of climaxing at the same time. And I'm going to call it what it is. The reason that everyone is awake right now is because the spirit of God is moving. Hmm. It's, it's undeniable. It's undeniable. Like it, 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 like the culture shifting that much on this conversation for someone who's been running this marathon for a while. Like mm -hmm. I, I've been black lives matter since the moment that, Black Lives Matter started as far as like once the moment, once the movement started, I was on board mm -hmm. as a, as a mm -hmm. believer. And I was, I was dialed in, I was, you know, on Facebook, giving the arguments on, you know, um, in, you know, talking to people, you know, um, and has, and that's really shaped how I've done ministry, uh, since that moment, since I've been a Christian. And it normally has been a two way conversation where you have, you know, Black Lives Matter, ideology will, you know, um, say something, um, put out content, put out energy, and it would immediately be responded with either the actual all lives matter or blue lives matter hashtag. And then all the ideology that comes behind that, the, you know, this is the argument we have, or this argument or that argument. You can see it in Drew Brees, speaking of sports, mm -hmm. Drew Brees thought it was sweet. He came out <laughs> and tried to use a talking point from four years ago and got drowned. Mm -hmm. For those of you who, who don't know, by his own fans. I yeah. mean, really, they were in, in the streets in New Orleans saying mm -hmm. F, uh, F Drew Brees. But for those of you who don't know, Drew Brees was asked in an interview um, uh, when players come back in the midst of all of this social unrest and are kneeling again kind of how what does he think about that reality that will most likely be the reality in the NFL here in the fall and of course he gave the the pretty standard talking point of well the flag and I we have to honor the flag and my grandpa fought in the in the war and we could talk on that um here in a second but I think the biggest thing that was so important about that symbolic about that moment was he couldn't breathe ironically he, he I mean the next morning he had to come out with a statement and apologize because I mean, teammates, former Hall of Fame players, coaches, everyone just demolished him. And the truth is, I think this is just a moment right now where the spirit of God is moving and racist arguments just aren't going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. Detracting arguments aren't going to work anymore. Um, uh, any type of like, hey, come on, guys, racism is bad, but. That just it's not it's not working right now. And the reason it's not working, I think it's the mixture of all the different things that are going on. But I ultimately think it's just the spirit of God saying, hey, 
it's really time for us to deal with this in this in this country. How, what, what do you guys do? This is going to sound wild, but I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and say it. I saw the largest standing flag in the United States got struck by lightning like two days after. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. And I, saw I, it. Like, I, I know. I know. That's crazy. <laughs> People are listening like, man, this guy thinks that God struck. Honestly, how? What are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds? That sounds like some biblical, like something. And I'm like, God, just, you know, boom. But, but like, no, I'm, I'm with you though, honestly, in, in, in uh, all seriousness, like, I think, I think it's really cool to see a lot of people are, um, a lot of people are kind of saying the same thing of, we don't want to hear, but, you know, we don't want, we don't want to hear you, you know, cut off your black friends with your opinion. No, listen, you know, um, and I think it's really cool to see that. Um, you know, I, I still think that the church could probably listen more maybe outside of our generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that, uh, I do think that, you know, with, with, with everything going on, I think a lot of people are listening, even people who, you know, just a few weeks ago were, were probably sitting around thinking that, you know, America treats everybody the same. People are now asking themselves, asking each other, like, how can I learn more about this perspective? And that's been really cool to see. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I think that it's, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it's something special. What do you, what do you, what do you, have you been kind of seeing this Joel, as far as like why the, the tide shifted so much so rapidly? I think Kennedy put it the best way earlier when he says there's no distractions right now. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we've in quarantine, we've gotten accustomed to being glued to a screen and that's our only connection to the outside world. And when the screens are all talking about the same thing, people are like, huh, like maybe there's something here. People have time to read. People have time to listen to podcasts. People um, can call their black friends and like have these conversations. And it's different when you're like, oh, I'd rather just like go watch sports or, you know, go mm-hmm. do something, hang out with people and like ignore the problems that are going on in the world. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't ignore it. Like mm-hmm. it's it's in your face, in and your face, the protests the protests are affecting people's lives. Like, mm-hmm. unfortunately, you have rioting, which is, I would say, not helpful to the movement. It helps in terms of getting attention, but the media—I mean, the media is the media. They're going to focus on the riots. They're not going to focus on the thousands and thousands of people who are just straight up protesting, and you know, showing solidarity without. <clears throat> you know, destroying property. Um, and, and there's a whole other conversation about writing, which we can get into later if we really want to. But the, the point is, this is different. Like it's, it's, it's something that it's international. It's mm-hmm. international. Yeah. I mean, that's wild to, to say like, oh, there's a, you know, you can say there's not a problem in America, but when people in Australia say there's a problem in America, when people in like the Netherlands say there's a problem, Berlin. like maybe there's a, problem (laughs) so i think it's just hard to ignore right now and Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong like i'm the kind of person that's going to say hey you know our media is going to fixate on the most juicy headline whether that be Mm -hmm. you know black man is kneeled on for 8 46 8 minutes 46 seconds or whether that be black protesters destroy property you know loot target Mm -hmm. or whatever or -hmm. whether that be um you know, whatever other, you know, there's an autonomous zone in Seattle. People mm-hmm. are declaring their own, uh, 
anarchy, basically, mm. they're going to focus on the craziest thing. And, you know, like we discussed on the last episode, we've really learned lately that the media is just not helpful. Yeah, mm. it, it, it's an element, but you really have to be really discerning when it comes to media. And I think people are really realizing that a little more now with the situation in the the polarization of the takes. Um, but it's really hard to avoid what's what's really going on. Mm-hmm. No, I I do want to I do want to jump in on that, and then let's just let's just have a little bit of conversation about specifically the the rioting <clears throat> because or in the, uh, the protest it needs to be called what it is. It's a demonstration of protest, right? Well, I would people, separate the two. I mean, I right, think there's protesting, right. I think there's rioting, but I think uh, I think so. One of the trends that you will see when the spirit of god is moving is not a lack of control because god is a he is a god that that um that his spirit produces self-control but what you what you what you will see is you will see an unrest i think that's the civil unrest has probably been Mm -hmm. one of my favorite ways that these that this whole thing is has been described as you you'll see an unrest and the language will become explicit. The language will mm-hmm, become mm-hmm. profane and the, and the decorum and the, like the civilized conversations they they're going to have to take a back seat to true frustration. Right. Um, right. And I, I think people have been making this comparison and I think it's so good. And I think the people who are shooting down this comparison are they don't want to see Jesus like this. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they just shoot it down because they don't want to have to deal with this. But when Jesus was in the temple, the story that we have yeah. of him in the temple, and there's theological reasons all around that of him claiming ownership over the temple. And I think sometimes we get it wrong when we think that the biggest thing was that people were financially taking advantage of people. I, I don't, I, not necessarily. I think N.T. Wright has a great take on essentially what Jesus was doing was he was noticing that his nation was heading in a very violent direction towards guerrilla warfare and an insurrection against Rome. And he knew the best way to stop a nation that's heading in a negative direction is to slow down the, the everyday Mm, business. mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what he did was Jesus went into the temple and he said, I'm flipping tables. I'm kicking animals out. I'm throwing down the monies, the very like, the normal, the status quo, the everyday business, I'm going to shut it down. And what it did was it it put everything at a halt and it made everyone have to listen to what he was saying about the direction that the nation was going, which of course, at that point, he was no longer being as veiled as he was earlier in his ministry. And I think there's something to be said about when a nation keeps prioritizing capital and property over people mm-hmm. to say, mm-hmm. well, you know what? Let's burn some of it down mm-hmm. so we can talk. Yeah. And so what I'm not about to do right now is say, hey, it's okay to to come into a community that you don't live in and burn stuff down or to um to destroy black owned businesses, which I'm I'm gonna just go ahead and say that has been an overblown thing. I'm going to say it mm-hmm. like that. That's, that's been overblown that black people are just destroying black businesses. Um, so 
we're just we're just we just need to stop that one right there. But uh, but it is happening. And so what I'm not doing is saying that the immoral actors who have jumped into this situation and just are just just being anarchists that that they need to be commended. But what I am saying is I think we need to have a kind of a threefold view of this. There's immoral actors. There's moral, peaceful protesters who are just not doing any kind of. And then there's there's moral people who are burning stuff down. There's moral people who are pulling statues down. Well, I, yeah. So I think you know that conference, that middle section that you're talking about. I think that's mm-hmm. really where we got to drill in 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 saying, okay, let's be strategic about this, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to use uh, physical force to demonstrate civil unrest, be mm-hmm. strategic about it. Pull down a statue. Heck you know, yeah, like exactly. that is a legitimate message that you're sending. Mm-hmm. Um, or Target, like Target has insurance, right? And I'm not saying mm-hmm. I'm advocating for these things. I'm just saying there's a difference between strategic moves, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, graffiti on a on a police department, you know, like mm-hmm. that'll be cleaned up, but it gets the message across, you know? Yes. There's a difference between or that when- and like some rando mm-hmm. small business that's going to suffer because like unjustly, like they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you could mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, that's just a casualty um but but i mean i mean it's not it's like if if you're gonna and i get it like people are angry and you don't have a a lot of time to strategize when you're angry but i think Mm -hmm. that's the call especially as christians i think that's the call we have is to Mm -hmm. in a moment of unrest be strategic i think jesus was strategic when he rioted in the temple i Mm -hmm. think he calculatedly did moves that got his message across was Mm -hmm. it you know universally acknowledged did he instigate great reform not necessarily but yeah. Yeah. I'm going to blur up that middle section. I'm going to blur up that middle section a little bit more and then I want to hear what what you what you're thinking, Candy. But I'm going to blur it up a little bit more cuz I, I think I agree. There is a, there does need to be a strategy in your demonstration. But I think when you have but I so I think there are so there's I think there's moral actors in that middle who are like, "Man, we're taking down statues. We're we're uh you know, putting graffiti on CNN and busting up some things at CNN because we're tired of the establishment and right. symbolize that, you know, um, we're, we're going to, we're going to do damage to a police precinct. So I think there are moral actors who are having very strategic demonstrations, but I think there's still some moral actors in there who are saying, Hey, I, I knelt and you called me a son of a bitch. Right. You know what I'm saying? Or, Hey, I marched. And you didn't listen. I voted and you didn't do anything. I, mm-hmm. You know, we keep doing these ri- this rhythm of like, you keep telling me that these, these are the means, these are the ways to do it. And then you don't do anything. And I think there's still some people in there. And look, I, I wouldn't do any of these things. I think I would probably tear down a statue. <laughs> I think I would do that. <laughs> but, all, but a lot of the things I personally would not do, but I think there's still a blur there of like, almost like a woman who gets sexually assaulted and you walk into her house and you see her just trashing the entire house. And I think some of it's like, Hey, that may not look strategic, but that anger is valid. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's, there's the immoral actors. And then there's that blurry, like some of it's strategic. Some of it's just anger. Some of it's, you keep telling me that these are the means by which I need to take care of this stuff and it's not working. And I think they're sitting right there in that middle in between the peaceful protesters and the immoral act. What you what you stewing on, Ken? Well, yeah, I was just thinking that um, I I like what you just said. I was thinking when Joel was speaking, the whole 
point of str- of strategy, I think that's very, very true. You look back and Martin Luther King mm-hmm. was strategic. He wasn't necessarily violent himself, but Malcolm X was strategic and he was violent. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was strategy involved. Black Panthers, strategic, mm-hmm. organized. Uh, there's always been kind of this organizing factor, but at the same time, as you said, there's kind of this, um, there is this group that they're communicating, even if you don't like how they're communicating, they are communicating something when they tear down statues or when, you know, in Minneapolis, a police station is burned down or, you know, things like that. And so uh, I think that honestly, a mix of the two, um, like I said, I I would never burn down really anything. Um, I, if you put me on the Martin Luther King, Malcolm X side, I'd probably be a little more Martin <laughs> Luther King, but, but, um, but I, I can't say, even he said that, um, you know, the thing that everyone's pointing to mm-hmm. is, is uh, rioting is the language of the unheard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think what we really need to remember, even if we're disagreeing with how they're doing it, is there's a heart to why they're doing it. And it's a heart of pain. And, and at the end of the day, if you don't treat that pain, you're going to keep seeing, you know, police or stations get burned down or statues get burned. Honestly, the statues, I really don't care about. Yeah, the they, whole, yeah, the they, whole they, solely it's thing. Time, it's time for them to come down. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't really... Yeah, it's not on the top of my head, but like it, they don't need to probably be there. And so, like at A and M, there's a statue yeah. of. Uh, and there's a lot of debate over Ross that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, what is the statue and... celebrating versus? Well, how does it make people feel? Mm-hmm. And I think well, I think the great compromise is like, hey, put it in a museum. Like, if you put it in a museum, yeah, you are memorializing. You're t- telling the story of what happened, right? Like, if people mm-hmm. really care about history, that's what happened. If you put mm-hmm. it out in the public square, you're implying that it's something. That needs to be worshipped. Also, Sully is literally an idol because people literally put money at his feet. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to talk about the idolatry of statues, this one, people are literally offering money to an yeah. idol. Yeah. And I mean, I know yeah. that's a hot take in Aguiland, but seriously, like, how is that not obvious? Well, let, let it be a hot take. <laughs> you know, it's, it's time for all this stuff to come out. We got to stop. Mm-hmm. We got to stop hiding behind. Even if well, he wasn't a Confederate, so it's, it's cool. still a problem. <laughs> right. It's a problem. And, and I'll just interject something super quick. I think I think that's a great compromise that you said, Joel, of like, hey, let's put it in a museum. Let's take it a step further. Let's just stop memorializing people and start memorializing moments. Mm. I had a really good one, one of my uh, one of my mentors right now. Um, his name is Marcus Lloyd. Um, we had a conversation about this and he was like. Because he said people would respond to him and they would say, well, we'd have to take down a Martin Luther King statue because wasn't he an adulteress? First off, don't equate adultery and someone being a slaveholder or someone enslaving someone or someone uh, desegregating or lynching or mass incarcerate. Don't don't compare the two. That's that's ugly. But two, yes, he did have a shameful past that he dealt with, dealt with his wife with um, and a. Clearly, they had worked that out because she never remarried after he was assassinated. But yeah, I agree. Don't put up a statue of Martin Luther King. You want to know a good example? Um, So there's a statue outside the New York Stock Exchange of a little girl, uh, the fearless girl. Have Mm -hmm. y'all heard about this? Mm-mm. it's um it's a girl she looks about you know 12 not like an actual person but it's an idea right it's this idea of a woman who is small but she her stance she's got this power stance and she is like fearlessly looking at the stock exchange so it's this mm-hmm. example of and it's actually um facing the charging bull statue if you're yeah, if you're familiar yeah, with mm-hmm. the bull market statue mm-hmm. and it's the idea of like 
women's empowerment in the economic sphere, right? It's not an actual person, but it encapsulates an idea. And we're memorializing the idea of women taking charge in the public market and being able to participate economically and succeed. That's it. Yeah, I think I think if someone wants to put up a statue of Martin Luther King locking arms with people walking down um, the uh, Ed, Edmund Pettus Bridge, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love like have a statue of Martin Luther King's famous "I Have a Dream" speech. You're memorializing a moment, not a person. I think that's perfect because moments normally moments aren't defiled, mm-hmm. but persons have complex, complicated elements. Kennedy, I'm curious. What do you think this is going to do to sports when they do come back? What do you mean? Like this whole, like, cause you know, people are going to kneel, you know, you know, people, you know, this is going to be on people's mind. Teammates are going to get asked harder questions now. Like what's going to be the overall, like, I think we're already seeing a little bit of it. Um, LeBron formed the, Mm -hmm. the group to protect the black vote Mm. with a bunch of other athletes and, I think you're going to see a lot more kneeling. I think you're going to see a lot more shirts. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more uh, or hear a lot more voices from athletes because I think athletes, I think athletes now realize their voice is probably one of the biggest voices for the black community. Uh, rappers too. Uh, I, I referenced a song uh, a few weeks ago on Twitter, Lil Wayne uh, <laughs> with the whole new Orleans thing. He said, if you take away the football team and the basketball team, all you have is me to represent new Orleans. And uh, I just thought about that when I heard that song the first time. And I was like, you know, like, realistically, politicians don't do a great job, Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm. I was speaking for the black community. Um, leadership was taken away to some degree, like mm-hmm. one big leader when they assassinated mm-hmm. Martin Luther King and, you know, other guys. Um, and, uh, you know, so really, like a lot of the big, powerful names in sports who can or just in, in society who can speak for the black community are your millionaire athletes who grew up poor, uh, your millionaire, you know, rappers. Cause at the end of the day, like this is one of the things I, I also mentioned uh, in my ranting is, uh, you know, money is speech according to the, uh, to the, to the Mm -hmm. Supreme court. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these people who speak for the black community now have a lot of money, but they didn't always, and Mm -hmm. they still know what it feels like to be black. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that when sports comes back, we're going to hear a lot more from LeBron James about things that don't have to do with basketball. We're going to hear a lot more from guys like Colin Kaepernick. And I think Kyrie Irving has been speaking out in the last day or two. Um, I think it's going to be everywhere and I don't know how long it's going to last. I hope it lasts a long time because honestly, I, I think that it's a well-needed voice. Um, I'm tired of people, you know, saying, Oh, you know, they just need to go ahead and play basketball and let's just keep politics out of sports. And politics has always been in sports. Mm -hmm. Muhammad Ali was a, was a political voice. Jackie Robinson was Jesse Owen. And specifically there's always been politics and involved with uh, the black community, because once you started to integrate, like I said, that became one of the biggest voices for black people um, tied with guys like Martin Luther King, of course, and everything like that. But, Mm -hmm. but yeah, no. So I, I don't, Honestly, I hope that we just event. I hope that this is a time where we just kind of accept, you know, what athletes have a voice too. They have a platform too. Let's just listen to what they have to say because they can totally relate to to people who are in a impoverished state, mm-hmm. being that that's where a lot of them came from. So I, yeah, I think that it's going to be. I think there's going to be a lot of talk. That's really good. I think one of the. I think one of the silly conversations. So the church does it because the church is not fulfilling her role um, in America in the West. 
Um, and then everyone else is doing it. And I, 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 we just, we just really got to kill this conversation. Like saying, Hey, some spaces just don't need to be political and we got to stop bringing politics in every space. We got to stop talking about politics. Like it's like some kind of like play that we can go and attend when we want and then leave. Mm -hmm. Politics is not a play. Politics is not, um, it's not a sport. Politics is people's lives. Policy in particular is people's lives. The reason that these cops can continue to kill unarmed black men and not be held accountable for it is policy. There's literally policy that mm -hmm. makes that happen. The reason that so many um, African-Americans and Hispanics grow up in under-resourced community is intentional, purposeful policy so that so even that whole you know ben shapiro was the idiot that said that we need to I, i'm you know he went on this <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> he went on the whole he always sounds like he's got a wedgie um <laughs> he, he he went on this whole rant well i'm just not gonna watch sports anymore because I, i'm gonna create my own sports league that doesn't talk about sports i'm like well you you go for it sir um it all you all you know not, let me stop before i say before i go too far but um that, that's not how life works, church. Listen to me, evangelicals. Listen to me, church. You don't get to run away from policy and politics. Or let me put it better. You don't get to show up whenever it's something that you care about and then say everything else is apolitical. Mm -hmm. Because someone had a really apt uh, and powerful tweet where they were like, hey, it's funny when it comes to racism, everyone says, just teach the gospel and it'll change people's hearts and then everyone will just stop being racist. But when it comes to abortion, it's mobilized vote. How dare you yeah. not vote for, uh, you know, a pro-life candidate? You know, it all of a sudden it, it turns into campaigning and voting and strategy. And when it comes to abortion, so I saw so I saw a tweet the other day. Policy matters. I saw a tweet that said uh, abortion is a social justice issue. If you vote against abortion, you are a social justice warrior. Hundred percent, hundred percent, absolutely. And so this whole lie that like politics doesn't is is this thing that we can just because and i and, and you know a lot of the way that it's been framed leads us to think that you know the red versus blue the well i when i get home and want to kick back i just put on fox news and i just hear a bunch of talking points and i don't think about the fact that this affects people's lives i just turn on cnn and msnbc and i don't think about the fact that this affects people's lives when we make decisions about going to war civilians die mm-hmm Poor people go off to war. Donald Trump doesn't go get a gun and go shoot and put his life on the line. Mm -hmm. Middle class and poor people do. Wall Street people don't go and put on, you know, uh, camouflage and, you know, and go drop bombs. Middle class and poor people do. Civilians in those countries die. These policies are big. These policies matter. These policies are what keeps getting us in these situations where we're crying out Black Lives Matter. And so I, we just got to kill that. Like, we got to talk about politics. But we, what we don't have to do is we don't have to talk about it in the silly binary nature. Absolutely. That it's always talked about. Like we just had a whole series on transcendent politics is what's important. So that's just that's just something that especially yeah. as we step into this series on on, you know, Black Lives Matter. And it's, this conversation needs to linger, like you're saying, Kennedy, we we're going to have to talk about politics because my life, African-American lives, Hispanic lives. People on the margins, poor people, white, black across the board. All of it is dependent upon how we properly talk about policy. 
Have you guys heard of the and campaign? Nope. So it's this guy in Atlanta. Yeah, I don't like him. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is guy, a black <laughs> black man in Atlanta named Justin Gaboni, and he uh, he has this campaign where he talks about like how can we how can we get involved with social justice and the gospel. Um, and from what I've heard of him and the research I've done, you know, it seems like that's like an effective or I, I'm not going to say effective. It is at least from what I've heard and understand. It's something that is seeking to depolarize the political sphere, especially for Christians mm-hmm. and focus on how can we be voices for change and not allegiant to a political party. Super quick, super quick. And then, uh, get back to the conversation. The my only thing about it and I think and I think it's important for me to bring it up just because I think I saw a great tweet that someone posted where they said Christians keep talking about escaping the binary nature of politics and yet I never hear anything tra- truly transcendent about what they have to say after they say that. Um I think it's good and I think it's a really good step forward the AIM campaign. I have a really close friend who's really into it. I think it's a really good step forward. I think it is Overvalidating some of the bad ideas that are in policies. So I think it's, I think I don't have too, time to get into the details, but I think it overvalidates some stuff on the left and the right mm. that is just ugly. And we don't even need to have a conversation about that being a proper way to move forward. Mm. And I think because it's trying to do so much compromise instead of transcendence transcendence Mm -hmm. is let's jesus did a great job of saying i don't want to compromise um have a compromise position between the pharisees and the sadducees and the herodians i'm going to say something so transcendent that it has some of the ideas within what they're saying but ultimately it is a whole different way to view kingdom power and ethics bigger conversation for another day but i think that's my only critique of the of the and campaign is it still feels very very watery mm-hmm. uh kennedy a question i have for you was um so as all this stuff gets hot naturally we're not just going to have conversations with friends we're not just going to have conversations with coworkers. we're not just going to have conversations with church members we're going to have conversations with family members and you have a very unique um family setup with you being of mixed race and I'm wondering not only how have, how have those conversations gone as much as you feel willing to talk about, but also what are what are helpful tips as we talk to family members, especially family members that are ideologically normally opposed to to Black Lives Matter and more progressive ideology? How do we engage in those conversations? Well, mm-hmm. yeah. So for me, um, I don't know if I said it earlier. Or not. I'm half black. Uh, I'll say a little bit more. I grew up raised by my mom who was white in a white neighborhood. I think I was the only black person in the neighborhood. And I want to say there was one Hispanic neighbor and everyone else is white. Uh, School I went to, I was the only black person and I could name probably all like six or seven of the minority, you know, classmates that I had uh, in the grade of like a hundred people. And so I, I definitely, I grew up with that sort of like, I I grew up thinking kind of like my surroundings did. Um, I thought racism was dead uh, or close to dead. Uh, I thought that 
you know, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech just kind of happily fleshed out racism and that we were going to move on to different problems. And we weren't necessarily learning uh, that much about like redlining or, you know, housing, you know, stuff like that, that lingered on after 1965. Um, And so for me, I had to learn about a lot of that on my own. I had to teach a lot of that to myself. And honestly, as a black person, especially going to college, when I was around different white people, not just the ones that I grew up with who got used to me, but different people, I started to see some new things and and started to really have an eye for what racism was. Um, And so when I have conversations with my family, it's, uh, I mean, for me, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little easier just because I can say this happened to me. Um, but it's hard because it's, there's still very much, I feel like a mindset that some of my family might not necessarily be used to escaping. They have this way of thinking. They think, oh, you know, racism is a hard issue. Jesus can, can heal racism. And I'm like, yeah, you know, Jesus, let's talk about Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was, a pastor. <laughs> um, he wasn't he. Yeah, yeah he was. He was a pastor. Mm-hmm. The church was a, hev- a heavy influence in the civil rights movement. He had a his PhD quote. Theology. Yeah, yeah. And, let justice and, roll and down Nelson, like waters. That's from the book of Amos. Amos it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's that? The there's a um, MLK quoted Amos in a lot of uh-huh. his speeches. It was his favorite book of the Bible, and the most like the most common phrase is let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like a ever flowing stream, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, when I talk to family about this, uh, which has actually been, I've gotten deeper probably more recently. Um, I think for me at some point I realized maybe my words aren't necessarily going to be as, as powerful because whatever reason People don't think that one person's experience is enough. They want to see more, which if they're not listening to other people, then they do think that it's just one person. Um, And so one of the things I recently did that I'd probably recommend is like, you know what, mom, do you want to read a book together? We can talk about this book and that may or may not work. But at the end of the day, you're bringing in kind of an expert third party who studied this, who has research in this. and you're challenging your family to see from a different side that they probably aren't accustomed to seeing or listening to. Um, I think that's a great idea. That's something that uh, I, I had to really think about that one for a long time because like some of us honestly aren't incredibly eloquent speakers. I think some, sometimes when I just ramble on about, you know, racial things or whatever, I, I can kind of get lost and I can kind of lose maybe a little bit of the meaning in my speech and my heart. But um Honestly, like, I think if, if you just said, you know what, brother, dad, mom, whoever, um, why don't we go through this together? I think that that's at least one thing that I'd probably recommend. hundred percent. And I, I think, uh, see, now I'm going to sound like Malcolm X. Hey, Ma- hey, by, by the way, Malcolm X was, is solely, sorely, uh, misrepresented. <laughs> like this guy was brilliant and he was not an anarchist. Um, so actually go read Malcolm. But what I mean by I'm going to sound like Malcolm is I think Malcolm was was truly a, a prophet. And yes, there can be um, non-Christian prophets, a bigger conversation for a different day, but truly a cultural prophet. And one of the things that I think is so important 
that Malcolm did was he would constantly call it like it is. And I think what's happened over the last seven years is I think in a lot of our conversations with the quote unquote other side, whatever that side is, because really it's coming from all sides, mm -hmm. uh, racist ideas. But um, when we talk to people, sometimes we're afraid to just say, hey, what you just said was racist. Mm -hmm. What you just said was actually a racist idea. It's got a long history of being a racist idea. This is not new content. This is not a new thing for um, the black church or for anti-racist movements to have to combat with. It is a racist statement. So, for instance, when when someone says black people never talk about black on black crime, they only like to get upset when it's a white officer that kills a black person. You just made a ra racist statement. Because what you did was. You just said, hey, look at the abundance of violence in the black community that doesn't happen in any other community. And look at how the black community just doesn't even want to talk about that. But they only want to talk about it when they feel like they want to race bait a situation. That was racist. Black on black violence is a myth. Every culture has violence against it, that that is inward. You kill your neighbor. You're not going to drive 40 minutes to go kill someone. You kill people that you have animosity with, people that you know, people that you have engagements with. Um, it's a racist statement, you know, or when you say, well, if black people would just learn how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just learn how to work hard, that's a racist statement. Well, that officer wouldn't have killed that person if they wouldn't have resisted. That's a racist statement. Like it's, it, these are ideas that it's like, there is no justification for someone who is unarmed to be killed. I mean, yeah, I'm sure some unarmed person can be really pretty deranged and you may have to use some physical means to get them in a car and put them in handcuffs and get them downtown. You should never kill them ever, 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 ever. And so it's like we have to start calling out these these moments where people make these statements or, or you know, like, you know, when they say, well, well, we already fixed all the laws. So right now, black people have all the room to run and they're just not doing it. It's a racist statement. Like, just, just call like, and, and we need to learn what racist ideas are. There's a great book called Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram, Dr. Ibram Kendi. Um, it's, it's, uh, he calls it the definitive work on racist ideas, on the history of racist ideas. Learn that these things have been said in different ways for the last 400 years. And let's stop validating when people say ugly, atrocious things in response to people's pain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, saying it's a racist statement doesn't mean you say, Hey, you're a racist pig and I don't want to have this conversation. Anymore. No, you're mm -hmm. in the most polite way possible. You're just saying, Hey, just so you know, what you just said was racist. So, so now let's keep talking and let's, and let me show you why that was racist. And let me show you why you probably shouldn't make statements like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I actually agree with that 100%. And I just wanted to bounce off of that. I think one of the things that I, I even used to be like this was when someone like what you just said, oh, it's a racist statement. If you say, oh, look at black on black crime, I used to look at that and say, no, that's not racist. You didn't say anything wrong or rude about black people. But if you're, if you're hearing that and you're thinking, gosh, that's not racist, I want to challenge you to think of racism is more than just hate. Mm -hmm. Racism is ignorance. Racism is, is fear. Racism is, you know, that little feeling of, you know, oh, I'm going to go ahead and walk across the street because a black person's coming my way yeah. or lock the door. You know, it's more than just, oh gosh, I don't like that, that person because they're specifically black or, oh, you know, <clears throat> I'm going to shoot this guy because he's, it's, 
that's an extreme form of racism, but there's more than just explicit racism. Actually, Martin Luther King's daughter is being very active on Twitter. If you're not following her, I, I'd recommend that you do. Bernice uh, King. Bernice King. She, uh, she talks about it all the time, hidden racism. It's a real thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I definitely would recommend reading. Uh, you said Ibram Kendi. Mm-hmm. Um, learn more about that hidden racism because it's not just all this overt, you know, stuff that honestly, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of taming uh, after Martin Luther King. It's still there, but we've done a pretty good, but that doesn't mean that it's gone racism. It just means that the hateful, overt, explicit racism that we, we saw throughout history is just a little quieter. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael said it best. He said, when a, when a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. When a white man has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Mm-hmm. I think you gotta, you, we got to start putting racism in that, in that category of like, hey, no, bigotry is one thing. And we will always have bigotry. Um, we'll always have that. But the structural ideas and mythologies and the actual real life structures and infrastructures of intentional isolation from resources, intentional over incarceration, intentional um, targeting. That's really what is this issue a lot. Some of these cops that have killed these unarmed black men, they probably if you were to talk to them on a regular basis are pretty decent people. They have really bad ideas about black people and about poor people. And it leads to tent to when they're in tense situations, they make awful decisions yeah. because they never dealt with their racist ideas about poor people and black and brown people. I want to push back on that a little bit. Um, I was I've so I've discussed all this stuff with um, two police officers this week um, for hours at length. And it's something that's come up, which I found kind of interesting is a lot of times we can talk about. Um, hidden racism we can talk about structural racism but a lot of times it feels like you're hunting a ghost that was the analogy that that came up in these conversations it's like you know if you look at the Derek Chauvin George Floyd video there's not explicit evidence of racism Mm -hmm. yes it was a white police officer and yes it was a black victim and yes there was an Asian and white um, police officers present there's no explicit evidence of racism you know and so it's the viewer who decides okay was this racially motivated or not and if you say it is racially motivated you have to point to say okay there are systemic reasons behind this there are hidden reasons why this is a racist act why black and brown people are disproportionately brutalized by police and some would even say like well the statistics don't even necessarily show that definitively um, it feels like you're hunting a ghost. What do you guys think about that idea that it's yeah. like, yeah, you know, you could, you could look at all the sociology, but a lot of these sociology studies are debated. You could look at the legislation. It's like, well, the legislation, yeah, disproportionately affects uh, minority communities for sure. But then there's that whole economic effect and, and saying like, okay, what does it take to get minorities out of these mm-hmm. economically disenfranchised positions? It's like, yeah. in a lot of these cases, the primary reason for um, maybe police brutality or over-policing or mass incarceration is not necessarily racial, but is economic. And yes, minorities are disproportionately affected by 
these economic situations. What, what, do, you, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, like, I, you, yeah, you know, I, we can, there's, we can, there's a lot there. There's we can be the, so, the boy who cried racist and, and yeah, shoot ourselves no, I, in the foot. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot there. One, um, I, I want you to envision. So I, I think it's very important in this time, especially as the problem, the biggest issue that has come up has been police brutality. Um, because it didn't, it, after George Floyd, we've seen it consistently amongst these protests. We've seen some very ugly, very ugly, very inappropriate police brutality. So going and talking to police officers, while that may seem like the, the kind of bridging thing, um, you gotta, you, you gotta be ready for the fact that they are going to, they're going to bullshit you. Um, that, that's just one aspect of, of what they have to do, um, in order to validate their job. And, and no one is saying and that's exactly why I said the statement I made before, um, you, you went just now, Joel, that police officers are going into these engagements as foaming at the mouth you know, monsters who are looking to just slaughter black people. Um, I actually think most of them go to bed at night, most nights thinking they're a pretty decent person. And actually most of their life have probably had decent interactions with black people. Mm -hmm. But because of some of their racist ideas and because of the racist infrastructure of policing, which I'll get to in a second, it leads to that disproportionate, ugly response towards African-Americans. So first and foremost, while we should be talking, we should, and that's actually the practical step I've given most people when they text me, be talking to police departments and talking about healthy reform. Always know they are going to BS you because they've got their talking points ready and you are, in a sense, coming to them to invalidate their job. So that's step number one. The, the second piece of kind of this chasing at ghost. Mm, that's actually racist. <laughs> I know that sounds like like over the top, but the, the, the idea when they say, well, you're just chasing at ghosts, you have no idea that the fact that I, a white officer, wasn't valuing the human life that was under my knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds is racist. Give me a break. You, well, you were on top of a man. Sure, sure. But I mean, there's let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. finish. You were on top of a man for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and you had no regard for his life. And yes, they had a history. So there are other things that were probably at play. But when we see time and time and time again, not just interactions with police officers and poor people interactions very specifically with police officers and African-Americans where literally um, the animosity is heightened for whatever reason. And we, and there's, there's historic reasons for this and current reasons for this, but the animosity is heightened. The communication is lacking. The authoritarian nature of the conversation is over the top for the fact that you are dealing with an unarmed citizen, no matter what, the accusation against him in that moment is it, it, it you it, it's almost like when someone is constantly beating a woman and they say well how do you know i'm sexist don't play with me I'm, I, like, like just don't do that with me as i'm literally watching you perform sexism and so the the chasing at the wind is i think 
a really ugly way to dismiss. And so you're not accused of this, Joel, the person that told you that um, is, is a really ugly way of dismissing what everyone is blatantly seeing with their eyes and the long history of policing that has been very intentionally targeted towards black and brown communities. Very intentionally. There are a significant amount more um, poor white people in America than there are poor African-Americans or Hispanic people mm -hmm. just by sheer number. Mm -hmm. And yet the reason that that has not become a national conversation is because the history, even of police officers in poor communities, poor white communities, has not been as brutal and as unrestrained as the history that police officers have had within African-American communities. And one last piece, and then Kennedy's going to jump in, is it the, big, the biggest reason that we can call it that, that we can call it racism, is because legitimately, um, it was really before Nixon and Reagan, but that's all we're going to have time for, is Nixon and Reagan, Nixon, even it was stated that he was charging the war on drugs. He was initiating the war on drugs to deal with his enemies, with his political enemies in the African-American community, in the hippie community, in the gay community, the anti-war um, community. like. He was initiating the war on drugs, particularly to target those people. And then Reagan took it even a step further and really particularly targeted African-American and Hispanic communities. And we even saw it in the different ways that they dealt with different forms of cocaine, mm -hmm. powder mm -hmm. and, and crack, and how they overwhelmingly um, went after um, crack cocaine, knowing that that was more prominent in African-American and poor communities. Mm -hmm. So we know it's not just a class thing because white poor people don't have these same complaints. And statistically, we just don't see that play out. And we certainly realize that there has been a history of very targeted activity with crime bills written in the 90s, just so on and so forth as we continue to uh, come up to our time period today, it's been a very intentional effort um, at how they have policed and engaged with black and brown communities. Can you Joel, what was your first question? <laughs> There's a few rolled in there. Um, Josh answered a lot of it. I think one element that he didn't answer that maybe you can speak to is one, there's this idea. Well, yeah, let me just stick with this. So, there's this idea of, okay, if we say everything's racist, how do we know we're not becoming the boy who cried racist and then calling things racism that are not racism and shooting ourselves in the foot? Like, how, how do we, can you, there's an argument to be made that's saying, oh, you know, because especially with the culture of identity politics and all that, and that's, that's a whole nother conversation. And we, we've discussed before, we don't like identity politics. It's not helpful. There's this idea that if we say things that are, say things are racist, but for instance, we can't actually back it up. Like for instance, Josh, you, you know, you still didn't prove, I mean, frankly, you know, despite the systemic racism that I definitely believe exists, we don't have hard evidence that Derek Chauvin himself was racially motivated when he murdered Joy Floyd. 
Like that is just an impossible thing to, to you. Can, I can't prove that of course, someone of course. in a very specific. I understand. Situation, I understand, and I'm not asking you to. I'm just the saying. The problem is, the problem is not that Derek Chauvin has to prove in that he doesn't need to say I'm on this dude's neck because he's an N word. The problem is when you see someone not valuing a life, intentionally not valuing a life, and we see this time and time again right. that when black people are in custody with police officers that their life is significantly not valued. No, no, no. I totally in agree. those moments, then that tells us the story. He doesn't need to cut that 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 we don't need him to be a Ku Klux Klan member no, and put I on understand. a hoodie. K- Kennedy, you know what, what do you do you think that there is a downside to bringing up racism in all of these different spheres that we talk about? Do you think there's ever a downside in talking about race too much? Um I mean there there might be a downside, but I don't think it's anything that we can control. I think that it's if we keep talking about it and they don't listen, that's that's not something we can control. But we can control whether we keep talking about it or not. We're not going to yeah. ignore it. Yeah. You know what I mean? If someone's like, you know, they cry race too much. Then at the end of the day, it's like that's obviously not the outcome that we want. But we can't we can't just pull ourselves out and say, OK, yeah. you know what? We're going to talk about race a little bit less. No, there's an issue that needs to be resolved. And now we're seeing, you know, I, I saw um, I saw from 2014, I think less than 50 percent of the United States thought that, you know, the death of Trayvon Martin and, um, you know, who was the, the St. Louis? Oh, uh, uh, Michael, Michael Brown, Michael Brown, you know, deaths of that nature. A lot of people over half of people saw that it was um, an isolated incident, that there was no systemic, you know, structure problem to it. Now, 2020, I saw a study that said. 74% of Americans believe that it is systemic. Uh, 94% of black, the black community believes it is systemic. And even 70% of white people now believe it's systemic. And so you still have that 30, you know, 26% that doesn't believe it is. But honestly, like, I, I hate to, I hate to say it. There are going to be a lot of people who just won't get it, but we have to keep talking about yeah. it. We have to. And yeah. so the downside, yeah, there's a downside there, but, but, that's there's a downside to a lot of things. There's a downside to talking about abortion as much. That's going to turn off a lot of people. Right. You know what? Christians still do that. Um, there's a downside to talking about sexism a lot. That's going to turn off a lot of people. But you know what? We're going to try to we're going to try to get the people um, who are at least half listening to start to start to realize some of the patterns that we you know exhibit. And so kind of going back to what you were saying about, you know, chasing a ghost, I actually think what Josh said. Yeah, I can't prove that that what's his name chauvin Derek chauvin yeah. yeah chauvin yeah i can't prove that he specifically was on the man's neck because he was black but i can look at the patterns that have, have been happening since like really forever but especially since trayvon martin when things started to get publicized and say frankly white people don't get killed when they're on jogs in white neighborhoods or or really any neighborhood for that matter white people don't get killed when they're walking in their own neighborhood back to their house with Skittles and a hoodie on, you know, white people don't get killed in their bedrooms by police officers Come on. multiple times. You know, mm-hmm. we can look at those isolated incidents and say, yeah, they might be isolated instances, but they're patterns and they only seem to be happening to the black community. Um, I don't necessarily like, and there, there are stats in it. Sure. You know, you look at the number of people who died uh, due to police brutality and, and, Yes, by sheer number, there are more white people who died, but by percentage, 
black people, I believe, are like two and a half percent more likely to die mm-hmm. to police officers than 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 white people. Um, you look at stuff like that and it's like, yeah, you know, maybe not every single instance was, oh, this guy was doing it because he's black. But somewhere in there, you have to ask yourself, why is this happening more to the black community than others? And if it is socioeconomic, then we address the socioeconomics. Even Martin Luther King, I keep bringing up Martin Luther King. He talked about the socioeconomics. Everyone wants to talk about, oh, you know, he was this peaceful guy and he had a, you know, talked about people's hearts and things like, no, he talked about socioeconomics. He's, I think he even said that you're not going to, that, that, um, racism, I'm paraphrasing, but racism and socioeconomics go hand in hand. You can't cure one without the other. Right. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, like you, yeah, just to say it again, you can't always prove what's going on in a person's mind. You can't, but you can absolutely investigate patterns and ask mm-hmm. yourself, why are they happening? Read sociology books, psychology books, um, have these conversations with people who are in these situations, black people specifically, because they are the victim um, in these cases. So. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think about this idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy? So one of the officers I was talking to was saying that in a lot of his interactions with um, particularly black, not even not even necessarily people who are getting arrested, but just interactions in general, there's that distrust of police that led to um, antagonization like he gave the example of like, okay, there's kids in these communities who are told from the moment they're born, basically like you can't trust the police, right? The police are out to get you. And then when they have an interaction with the police, there's a, there's a pattern of, of assuming the worst intentions from the officers and not wanting to comply because of that. Um, so let me give an example, right? Um, I, I can't, I don't know if you guys have seen this video. I'm sure we've seen literally hundreds of videos of stuff going on this week, but um, I saw a video of a cop that pulled someone over. Um, It was a black man who was driving and a black woman who was recording the video and uh, the black man and the black woman um, were not complying with the officer. Like they were just not listening to instructions. They were assuming that he was, um, he was out to get them, et cetera. Um, so the, the guy was driving a hun- over 100 miles per hour in a 65 per- mile per hour zone. And so he was clearly doing something illegal. Um, I think depending on where you are, that is enough to get arrested. And so the woman's recording this video because she's assuming that some sort of police brutality might happen, right? Or, or you know, she's recording it, right? She, she just wants to be on the safe side. Um, so the officer is like really polite, really talking to them, uh, really being really patient. Uh, there's a little bit of like mixed messages, but he's pointing a taser at him specifically, not a gun, even though technically I think he has a right. Um, it's with someone who's not complying. He can, depending on where you are, use some level of force. He's only threatening with a taser. He's like politely asking him to move on. And they, the, the black uh, man and woman, they ask him to call for backup because they want a second officer at the scene. Right. And so the officer's like, all right, I'll call for backup. Like if you, if you think I'm going to like overstep my bounds here, I'll call for backup. Like we'll figure this out. And then the, so the white officer is like, in my opinion, it seems like he's really trying to do his best and they're giving him a really hard time. Then the second officer pulls up. It's another white guy. He immediately walks on the scene and slams the black man's head onto the, 
onto the just, hood of the car. Definitely, definitely and it's like, video. yeah, I've seen that video. Yeah. So let's just go into it. One, <laughs> I, okay. I do find it surprising that you interpreted the video the way you interpreted it because literally everyone else on the planet has interpreted that. Not everyone else on the planet, but every other, especially black and brown person that has seen that video has interpreted that video as that cop being completely out of bounds. Now, one, I don't know that that I did. I don't know that person was driving 100 miles per hour on the 65. Um, we we don't I mean, have that's, that confirmed. That's, maybe someone, if that's true, that's that's warrant for maybe arrest. someone put that over one of the put that statement over the video or whatever. Yeah, but it's not mentioned in that, the video. We don't but I mean, yeah. know that happened. Two, the African American. Just, just to quickly dissect the video, but the African American in the video is asking him, "What did I do?" The officer refuses to answer the question. The African-American in the video even even like gives a slight narrative of like, hey, I I thought you were actually going to get someone else. You told me to follow you here and then I followed you here and you're still not telling me what I did. And the officer continues to refuse to tell him that and just says, and and the and the and the and the guy in the video as a taxpaying citizen who pays that cop's salary has a right to know why he is being detained and right, he's absolutely. not that's not answered for him and so he says no you're I'm not I'm not putting on the handcuffs cuz you have yet to tell me why I'm being detained the officer he asked for he now look at what he actually does in the video the guy assumes that if there's more cops then he can reason with them because clearly this one officer he's interacting with is unreasonable and the other officer gets there, and before he even begins yeah, a conversation absolutely. with an unarmed person that cannot hurt either one of them besides a physical attack, he immediately comes in like a bull in a china shop, grabs him, throws him to the ground. Yeah, and I would agree. That's so wrong. I think to go back to your original question, no, black kids are not told from the moment that we're born, um, do not trust the police. What we are told from the moment we uh, our young is we do not believe that police officers are there for our safety. This it is it is normally it's called the talk, mm -hmm. and it's normally mm -hmm. not like it's not NWA style f the police. <laughs> the the talk <laughs> is normally a well laid like I remember when my mom had this conversation with me. It's a well laid out conversation of hey. Hey, baby, police officers in, in this community are not the ones that you go to immediately when you are in trouble. They're, they're, they, they, they do not have the same disposition towards you that they have towards other people in other communities. And unless you absolutely need to call them, unless you absolutely need to engage with them, try your best to avoid interaction so it's a so it's much bigger than mm -hmm. just don't trust them mm -hmm. you know um and it's and it's much more well laid out for the logical reasons behind it and i think what that police officer did to you which i thought was incredibly disrespectful was instead of him empathizing with why is an entire community of people sitting their children down and saying not to trust us why is an entire community of tax paying american citizens sitting their children down and saying that we agents of the state should not be trusted. He says, well, I guess it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. I guess 
since they don't trust us, then when we interact with them, they piss us off and they don't respect authority. And then we have to have these ugly interactions with them. That's ugly. That, that's, uh, that, that, uh, that, that's really what it is. That officer should be taking accountability to be sitting in those houses, going to go, having, setting up meetings with, the, with that community and saying, why don't you trust us? What is the breach in our relationship? Or he could pick up a book and read for more than 50 minutes and look at the long history of all of the different ugly lynchings and awful attacks on the black community since slavery that would not have been possible without law enforcement. And he would immediately realize why it's not that black people just blindly don't trust law enforcement. Black people know what law enforcement is. And in African-American communities and black and brown communities, it is a police state. And that's not chasing ghosts. That's not making assumptions or not properly looking at the job. That's facts. And, and you, you can dispute any, you can dispute any argument, but you, but I mean, book after book, academic study after academic study, it is laid out that the policing system, especially in poor, I'll give it to you, poor and black and brown communities is specifically there not to uphold justice, but to, uh, to, preserve the status quo and that African-Americans and Hispanics get the brunt of that treatment. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> He's looking at me like I, that's, that's on you. Yeah. 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 Hey, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I no, like to, I like, I like I to, like this it. is I how just, I like to have these conversations. Right. I just think it's so interesting that those police officers, that, that's why I tell people. Well, it's not universal. I mean, these guys, like I specifically talk to these guys because they're the most well-read, nuanced, you know, people I know. They're not just like random beat cops who like don't care. Like they investigate the issues and they are involved in these communities. They sound and, like they ain't never read a book. <laughs> no, they <laughs> I'm just, I'm just keep it real. They, they don't, sound, they, they sound like, no, they legitimately, they sound like, they have not done the investigative work into the, the cultural breakdown of mistrust and animosity towards police officers and black and brown. They really did. They like some of those arguments just sound airheaded. And, and but I mean, they're talking and, from their personal experience where they are, you know, trying their best, making judgment calls in these real scenarios. and people are making it difficult. Um, and especially here's another example, right? So one of these officers was involved in a violent altercation, le mm -hmm. completely legally justified. And mm -hmm. it was like in the dark um, mm -hmm. and, you know, this sorts of things and was later like someone else made it about race, you know? Um, and, and it's like police officers have to deal with a certain level of, okay, like, you know, we're just trying to do our jobs here. And this conversation has a tendency to assume the worst in every police officer. I wonder why. I mean, I agree. The system's broken. <laughs> like, I agree. Like, the system like, needs reform. And I agree. I, there's a lot of problems I've, out there. There's a lot of, yeah. I've given, I've given the, the, uh, the, the credence to the side of like, I bet there's great cops that go to bed as great people. But it's like, my man, when someone's reaching for 
their papers to show you that they are a legal gun holder and you gun them down in their car. Yeah. I wonder why. I wonder why when literally I was walking to, I mentioned this on a, a few episodes back, I, went, I was walking to a, a midnight Yale and a young black man whose light wasn't working on yeah, his bike yeah. and was just trying to drive home was literally ended up surrounded by four police officers. Yeah. Four it cop happens. cars, actually multiple police officers in each of the cars. So, uh, And I had to stand there because he was afraid that an agent of the state would harm him. So he asked a stranger like myself to stand with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder why. It's like, it's because it's, these aren't just like isolated stories, you know? And it's like your boy hit with an anecdotal story where it's like, hey, one time I had a justified violent thing. And then then everyone thought it was about race. Well, I, I, I wonder why, sir. And I think cops just need to be sensitive to the reality of like, hey, there's a, one, there's a whole structural system that was built on a flawed idea of how you should engage social issues, which is the, that's why the huge defund the police movement is so big, because people are like, hey, like maybe we need to stop overfunding our and militarizing our police forces. And honestly, if kids just had like mentors and different sporting events and there was healthcare and mental health facilities and livable wage jobs and things like that, they, the crime would just decrease and cops wouldn't have that much more work to do in these communities. But it's like, dog, look at the infrastructure of your job and how it was mm-hmm. literally originally built to catch slaves and then went on to be built to, to keep marginalized communities subservient and under surveil- surveillance. And then like, Honestly, think about the awful interactions that people are seeing time and time again between you and citizens, not criminals, citizens. And take responsibility. I just a lot of the pride that I see from police officers not taking responsibility for the awful things that their comrades have done and then saying, well, why do you look at me like I'm a problem? I, I, I can't even, I can't even, mm-hmm. I really can't. Yeah. For me, it's just like, <clears throat> I, I think one of the things that people oftentimes reflect back on and, and maybe even people who listen to this will probably think this, not all, ba- not all cops are bad. And I would agree. I think the vast majority, like you said, mm-hmm. of police officers are great people who are trying to do the job of serving their community. They're passionate about being police officers. They're passionate about, you know, just the job in general. Um, and they're probably great loving husbands, you know, but the, the fact is that they're, even if there's a portion of people who are doing something that's wrong, immoral, possibly even illegal, and they're getting away with it. I, it doesn't necessarily invalidate these people as good men, but it, it definitely invalidates the system of policing and why there's no accountability in it. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that, you know, like I've known plenty of police officers who I think are great. Um, I'd love it if, if I ever got pulled over, hopefully not, if they were the ones, you know, but, <laughs> um, but like, I've also known of stories where, you know, um, I've had family who was domestically abused. The, the husband's a police officer. My family reports it and the police just kind of sweep it away. It's a police officer, police mm-hmm. officers. You know, I, even if it's something as little as, oh, my brother got a ticket, 
I'm a police officer. I'll just go ahead and, and wipe that away. I'm like, no, you, you can't <laughs> as a police officer, just, just give this benefit of the doubt to other police, police officers. Your job is serious. You have the, the duty of protecting lives and protecting the community and doing it equally. And so that's, that's my biggest issue is, you know, we see it took what, like, how, how many months was it for Ahmaud Arbery's two? Yeah. It took two months. I think, for, wait, from he, February to uh, maybe May, three, yeah, former, like three, former yeah. police officers. Uh, you're going to tell me he didn't get the benefit of the doubt because yeah. he was a police officer Come on. once, Come on. you know, um, the, the George Floyd murderer, it took all this protesting to get them to get arrested. You're going to mm-hmm. tell me it wasn't because they got the benefit of the doubt. You know, it, it time and time again, I, I mentioned the, the ticket thing. I know it's small, but like, when I get pulled over, I'm like, there's no way I can get out of this. Right. I'm sure you think the same thing. There's no way I'm just going to have to pay the ticket or I'm going to have to take a class. One of my roommates got pulled over. He's like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and call my brother. You know, there shouldn't be this sort of, you know, allyship of police mm-hmm. officers protecting other police officers. And I'm not even saying that that's necessary. Like, I would do that if I was a police officer. If I, you know, had a brother or something, I, I'd mm-hmm. probably do it given the way that things are. I'm not saying that you're a bad police officer, bad, but I, I think that the way that the system works, there shouldn't be allowing of, of any sort of crimes committed by certain people to get just kind of pushed away. No, if you're a police officer and you domestically abuse somebody, or if you're a police officer and you kill somebody or do any sort of brutal act, there should be your, your department shouldn't be the one investigating you. There should be somebody else who is a third party, in my opinion, mm-hmm doing the investigation who doesn't have this sort of oh we're gonna back each other up mentality mm-hmm. and let's take it a step further like let's not act like those those are those are pretty juvenile things that are happening in police stations when when michael uh brown's uh when ferguson during that michael brown situation when ferguson's police department was investigated by the doj what came out of that was awful the, mm-hmm. the report that came out of what that police, the, the whole department was doing and the racist nature, the literal like racist targeting that they had towards the black citizens in that community. There was an email that was sent around saying that because a woman had an abortion, she should be given a reward for crime, uh, uh, crime prevention. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, there were emails that were come, going around about Michelle and Barack Obama being monkeys. That whole police department was corrupt, mm-hmm. yeah. and we see a lot of police departments that have had to come down recently because they were there's a history of them planting drugs on people. Mm-hmm. There was history of 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 overuse of a, a constant overuse of excessive force towards citizens. So one, those were some juvenile. There's some really awful right, yeah. stories. But even to take it a step further, and this quote has been going around a lot, and it just needs to be said. You don't get to be a bad apple as a police uh, officer. Matter of fact, let me take it a step further. You can't be good. You got to be perfect. I have a friend that's a pilot. He he flies for waste management. He's not good. He's perfect. I my a good friend of mine is right now going to medical school to become a doctor and a surgeon. He's not going there to be good. He's going there to be perfect. My life is in your hand. You can't be good. Be perfect. It, that is really what it comes down to. And so I I just think we. We've we become so dull and 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 expect so little of police officers to where we're literally seeing an entire crisis 
a nation in complete unrest because of how bad across the nation they are doing their job and we're still giving them the benefit of the doubt there's something that's wrong with that mm. yeah i i think for me it's i i've gotten to the point where i used to give them the benefit of the doubt um i can't i can't anymore because at the end of the day the the benefit of the doubt i feel like should always rest with the people that's why we have innocent until proven guilty mm -hmm. Uh, the benefit of the doubt is not something that belongs to somebody with the gun. It's somebody who got shot by the gun. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, if they're proven that they were the ones who were, you know, they were attacking with a gun themselves or they were armed or whatever, the benefit of the doubt is lost, obviously. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that there is always this kind of, oh, but what if this happened? What? If? No, no, no. Take yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. Say what just happened was wrong. What just happened was was horrible. I wish it didn't happen. I don't know who's wrong, who's right, but if any benefit of that I was given, it's, I don't, I'm not going to give it to the person who shot somebody. I'm just not, mm -hmm. um, maybe at some point, you know, they'll be proven innocent and I'll be able to say, okay, you know what? That was, mm -hmm. that was just sure. But with, I mean, all these deaths that we've seen, there've been too many benefits of the doubt. There, there've been too many people who just got away with, uh, you know, flat out murdering somebody either because there was no video uh, or because, you know, the person wasn't there to be able to defend themselves and give their side of the story because they're dead. You know, I'm, I'm not, I can't, I think we give the benefit of the doubt way too much mm -hmm. to people who mm -hmm. just murder people or beat people up mm -hmm. uh, with physical force. Um, I think that, I think that mentality needs to go away. It's got to go. And th this is probably going to be the last thing I say, uh, but I, I really want. I, I really want to. I want to zone in, and I, audience, I'm, 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 I'm talking to you. If you are a police officer listening to this audio, this, this, uh, this podcast, if you are someone who has family members who are police officers, I, I, I really want. I really want you to hear me. We're tired. I, I, I really, I really want you to hear me. We, as in black and brown people. Poor people across the board, specifically, the conversation has been around um, African-American communities. We're tired. We are tired. And the reason we keep saying defund the police and abolish the police is because we're tired. We're tired. I'm tired of watching videos of people that look like me get killed. It, 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 it creates it. it an amount of an amount of anxiety that you possibly listening to this that that is a police officer even if you are an African American police officer may not be able to understand because of the powerful position that you are now in we are tired and every time you put a bullet in someone or choke them to death you keep starting things that put that have this nation on the verge of being burned to the ground. You should realize that we're not just going to keep putting up with this. And so it's time for some serious legislative change. It's time for us to stop overly funding a bunch of toys for you guys so that when when civil unrest comes, you can just tear gas peaceful protesters. We've seen the videos. They're out there. Literally, we're protesting police brutality, and there's still police brutality. 
And I, I want y'all to hear this. If you're a police officer listening to this, or if you are family members of people who are police officers listening to this, it's, we, we got to have a change. We got to have a change. Infrastructurally, a change because I've never been more tired than when I watched that 846. I, I, I've, I've, it's in, from Trayvon Martin on, I've seen countless ugly videos. I've never been as you can hear it in the tone of the entire this entire episode. I've never been as tired as when I watched that 846 as that man was literally pleading for his life and no one around him that was in uniform gave a damn. We're tired. It, make a change infrastructurally because we're tired. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. And thanks, Kennedy, for uh, joining in the conversation, being on the program. This is a really um, somber but important conversation, conversation we need to keep having, um, one that we need to keep really educating um, all of us just in. And, you know, we can't we can't just be excited about all this for two weeks on social media, but we got to really do the hard work of reading, of protesting, of um, investigating our, our local representatives and the policies they stand for and um, really fighting for justice. Uh, we're in a unique time and I think we're going to see um, a lot of good come out of this. So thanks guys. I really enjoyed this conversation. Listeners, thank you for listening to the Moral Minority Show. Um, keep tuning in this season as we are discussing Black Lives Matter, Black Experience in America.